Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 and then focus on verse 4 this morning. My plan was to take on verses 4 through 6, but then as I spent time on verse 4, I thought in our particular cultural moment and life of our church, I should spend time meditating with you on verse 4, so we're going to do that this morning. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. Let's give thanks. Father, we are thankful that your son, the head of the church, has spoken to us by his spirit in the word. That this word was given not just for the Hebrew Christians in the first century, but for your church in every age. May we receive it as such. May the spirit give us ears to hear what he is saying to the churches. We pray that we would be those who hold marriage in honor and keep the marriage bed undefiled that we would be salt and light in this world in which marriage is so often dishonored and the marriage bed so often defiled and done so with so many justifications for it. May we walk in holiness as you are holy. May your spirit cause this in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, since the fall of man, marriage has fallen into dishonor. I don't want us to think that ours is the first generation to dishonor marriage. It's certainly not. In fact, the reason Scripture has to so frequently address the issue of dishonoring marriage is that as far back as 4,500 years ago, 6,000 years ago, depending on how you do your math, count things out, people were dishonoring marriage. Now, marriage is sometimes more and sometimes less honored in particular cultures and in particular times. But we live in a culture and time in which marriage is greatly dishonored. Think of the growing dishonoring of marriage and the open, free defiling of the marriage bed that's taken place in just the last 70 years. The advent of the birth control pill decoupled marriage, sex, and childbearing from one another in a manner that laid the groundwork for both the sexual revolution and radical feminism. The sexual revolution popularized the notion that we are most fully human when we are expressing ourselves sexually, particularly outside the bounds of marriage, because marriage is just confining. Roe v. Wade made the fruit of the marriage bed, i.e. children, utterly disposable by legally protecting the murder of unborn children. The legalization of no-fault divorce, which would be no surprise to you, started in California actually might surprise you under Governor Ronald Reagan, combined with a romance culture, cheapened marriage as some kind of romantic contract that begins and ends with my particular passions and emotions. I fell in love with you. I fell out of love with you. Listen, you fall in a ditch. (laughs) Love is a decision and action that you participate in, not merely an emotion or a passion. The proliferation of pornography has devalued sex as some kind of base and cheap pursuit of pleasure 
rather than as the pursuit of intimacy within the bounds of a marriage covenant. The delay of marriage to later in life. You guys notice that? People are getting married older and older. And the widespread acceptance of living together has turned marriage into a kind of optional arrangement when you find it to be convenient rather than a holy estate ordained by God. The legalization of so-called homosexual marriage. I say so-called homosexual marriage because it is not possible for two men to marry under God, regardless of what the state says. But we've legalized this utterly unnatural and wicked attack on the institution that God has ordained and established. This dishonoring of marriage has bled over into the church in significant ways. We are excessively timid to talk about these matters frankly and biblically. Rarely will churches discipline members who divorce unlawfully or who participate in sexual promiscuity or abortion or other unethical behavior unrepentantly. We're often guilty of encouraging young people to date unwisely and to delay marriage till later in life. Why, as parents, we would want our immature teens to be dating at all if we really do not see them in a place to pursue marriage, I don't know. And why would we ever let them date with little supervision and accountability? Do we really believe anything good is coming from that? Further, why do we encourage them to delay marriage so long? It seems we fear their lack of financial success more than we fear them offending God through sexual immorality. So today I'm slowing down on Hebrews 13.4 to discuss what it means to honor marriage. As Christ's people, as his church, his bride, we are called to be salt and light in the world. We are expected to love the Lord and his church. And one way we can do this is to honor marriage. So let's consider that today. And we're really going to consider that under three, if you will, three major points Here's what they are. First, honor marriage, or marriage is honorable. Second, sexual morality is dishonorable. Hear that contrast? Marriage is honorable, sexual morality is dishonorable. And the third one is how we can fight to honor marriage. How do we fight to do it? So really the third point is application. My first two are just going to be explicating the notion that marriage is honorable and that sexual morality is dishonorable. And my third point will be making application to it. So let's look at the first point. Marriage is honorable. Look at Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. In the Greek language, this word honor is first for emphasis. Timios hagamos, which is like honor the marriage. And then it says in pasen, among all. Honor the marriage among all. And we wonder, how do we translate it? Literally, we could say marriage is honorable in all and the marriage bed undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. What's interesting is there's no verb here in this verse. There's no verb. So we have to supply the verb. And because we have to supply the verb, it leads to some questions. I know you see a verb in your English Bible, but in the Greek text, there's no verb. So then we have to supply it, which leads to a set of questions. And here's the big question. Is this a command? Do we render it as your English Standard Version does, let marriage be held in honor among all. Uh, New American Standard does a similar rendering of it as a command. Or is this an indicative, a statement of that which is true? Do we render it as the King James does? Marriage is honorable in all. You guys hear the difference? One, marriage is honorable in all. That's a statement of reality. The other is a command. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Is it an imperative, a command, or is it an indicative, a reality? Further, who is the all? It seems to be referring to all sorts of people. 
wealthy or poor, whatever nation or station or vocation. I'm starting starting to sound like Dr. Seuss, and I'm going to be canceled here in a minute. So I need to be careful with all this rhyming business. Whatever you are in life. I think this is best translated following the King James Version, actually. Marriage is honorable in all, and the marriage bed is undefiled. This truth that marriage is honorable is being contrasted with what is dishonorable. That's why I think that's the better translation. It's being contrasted with what is dishonorable, unclean, and therefore under judgment, namely fornication and adultery. Those things are dishonorable and defiled. In other words, I'm arguing that this is a statement of what is true. A statement of what is true and not a command to make it so in your life. With that said, however, however we translate this, the outcome is the same, isn't it? If marriage is honorable, then we should honor it. If we should honor marriage, that's because it is honorable. So let's define some terms. What is marriage and the marriage bed? I really shouldn't have to spend a long time defining these But we live in America, namely California, in the time we do. Marriage is a covenant between one biological man and one biological woman. Marriage is not a covenant between two siblings. Marriage is not a covenant between two people of the same sex. Marriage is not a covenant that includes more than two parties. Marriage is a covenant given by God between one biological man and one biological woman. And the word covenant is important here. The marriage covenant is not a private matter of the heart. You cannot be married in your heart. The marriage covenant is a public taking of vows between one man and one woman to keep themselves only unto one another as long as they both shall live. The marriage covenant consists in those publicly witnessed promises. The marriage covenant is not your ring. By taking off my ring, I did not become less married. And by putting it on, I do not become more married. That's a sign. The marriage covenant isn't my set of passions. Because I feel a particular way about my wife today and don't feel that way tomorrow does not make me more or less married. The marriage covenant consists in a set of promises that are made publicly before witnesses. And it's a public covenant that is administered by the state and by the church. That's why a pastor in our state will say, by the authority invested in me, by the state of California, and as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I now pronounce you husband and wife. You don't enter the covenant and leave the covenant at your own whim. Just like you can't be married in your heart, you can't be divorced in your heart. Further, the marriage covenant is consummated by a sexual relationship. And the proper pursuit of that sexual relationship is covenantal union Intimacy and procreation. Those are the proper pursuits. Children are the blessed fruit of that sexual relationship. So that's what marriage is. But our text assumes that the honor of marriage is being threatened. In other words, when he states marriage is honorable and the marriage bed is undefiled, he's actually assuming that the honor of marriage is being threatened in some way. Which causes us to ask, well, how was marriage being threatened? In what ways was it being threatened? So I want to show you two ways that marriage was being threatened in the first century to which this author is responding by saying marriage is honorable. First, it was being undermined by loose codes for divorce. Quick and easy divorce was undermining marriage. Look at Matthew chapter 19 and look at verse 3. 
And Pharisees came up to him, there's large crowds coming to Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? See, they were teaching that it was lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? In case you wondered if Jesus has a view on homosexual marriage, there you go. Created them male and female. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. This is a strong standard. They wanted to divorce for any cause, and they wanted to ground that in the fact that Moses said, if you divorce your wife, give her a certificate of divorce. And what they failed to understand was the reason Moses said that was because if a man just left his wife and took another wife and didn't divorce her, she had no ability to remarry and was left destitute with no one to provide for her. And this is the kind of thing they were doing. So Moses makes an accommodation for the sake of caring for those abandoned women. But then he goes on to say, you can't divorce for any cause except for sexual morality. The disciples understand how high the bar is. How do we know that? Look at the answer. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. If that's the only grounds we can divorce on, then we just should stay single. And Jesus goes on and says, it's a difficult saying, some men choose to become eunuchs. So... It's true, he does say that. So marriage was being undermined in the first century by loose codes for divorce. It just was. It was also being rejected outright in the first century by asceticism. If you know what asceticism is, it's kind of severity of the body. It's a saying any kind of pleasure, anything I might enjoy in life, I should put away because any sort of pleasure in life is ungodly. It's what we also call incipient Gnosticism. The Gnostics, those who had special knowledge arose really in the second century, but the seeds for Gnosticism were already existing in the first century, denying that the physical body could have anything good about it whatsoever. And so you have to deny anything uh, physical. Therefore, marriage should be put out of place. How do we know that was happening even in the first century in the church? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, which they were in, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, what are demons teaching to which the people are becoming devoted? Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage. Verse 3, forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. See, marriage is created by God and it's good. So people might be saying you should abstain from it, but you shouldn't. See, marriage is honorable. It's honorable. Marriage is a covenant given by God. It is a covenant of nature. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are in constant pursuit of undermining and perverting what God created as good. As I said in my introduction, we are witnessing a culture-wide dishonoring of marriage and the marriage bed. The heart of Hebrews 13.4 is to tell you that marriage is honorable, as is the marriage bed. It's honorable. 
It's good. God created it that way. So that leads to a question that we may not think about often enough. These are the ways I interrogate the text of Scripture when I'm spending time in it. You might wonder, so why is marriage and the marriage bed honorable? I sort of assumed it in my answer I just stated, but I haven't argued it. Why is marriage honorable? Let me briefly give you five reasons why marriage is honorable. Marriage bed is honorable. They're quick. First, marriage is honorable in that it was instituted by God. We just read that in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. God created it this way. Second, marriage is honorable in that God and his wisdom, listen to this, God and his wisdom deemed it good for man. It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. So if God and his wisdom says it's good for you, it is. Marriage is honorable in that God instituted it, catch this, before the fall into sin. When does God institute human government? After sin. Why does he institute the state or the human government after we sinned? To restrain our sin. Paul tells in Romans 13 that the state exists to restrain sin. But marriage was given prior to the fall. In that sense, marriage is pre-political. The state doesn't get to define it. The state administers it. The state recognizes it. The state protects it. But the state doesn't get to create it or redefine it. It exists prior to the state. Yes, the state recognizes it. Yes, the state exercises authority with regard to administering it. But marriage comes before the state. Marriage is honorable. Here's another reason. Marriage is honorable in its end or its purpose. Its end is to provide a companion for Adam, to procreate children, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. By the way, that's not only said to Adam in the creation and that covenant, but it's said in Genesis 9 to Noah when he comes off the ark. It's honorable in its end to build up godly families, to avoid sexual immorality. It's honorable in its end or its purpose. Marriage is honorable this is the fifth one, in its mysterious revealing of the gospel. I don't have time to get into this today, but I just want you to hear what Paul says. Paul quotes in Ephesians 5, he quotes Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says this, this mystery is profound. What mystery? The mystery that is in Genesis 2.24. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. In some way, God gave marriage as a mysterious revealing of the gospel of christ and his church so it's honorable this indicative this statement of reality that marriage is honorable needs to ring forth from the church not only in our statements but in the way we live divorce is not honorable it is sometimes in extreme circumstances permissible for example adultery abandonment etc but it is never honorable Same-sex marriage is not honorable. It's not even marriage. Living together is not honorable. Sex outside of marriage is not honorable. None of those things are honorable. That leads to our second point. Sexual morality is dishonorable. So when I say marriage is honorable, sexual immorality is dishonorable. Look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, or it should maybe say marriage is honorable, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, or the marriage bed is undefiled. It's clean, in other words. Now notice what it says. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now I really want to consider that under two headings. I want to define sexual morality for you, and then I want to talk about God's judgment of sexual immorality. So those two headings is defining it and then 
talking about God's judgment of it. Who are the sexually immoral and the adulterous? The sexually immoral are fornicators. That's the New American Standard, I think, more helpfully translates this fornicators. This is talking about the King James Version is the best, whoremongers. Not a term we use much anymore. <laughs> but the language is the person who's single and has sex outside of marriage. It's talking about the sexually immoral or the fornicators or those who are single having sex outside of marriage. The adulteress, that next term there, are those who are married people participating in sex outside the bounds of the covenant marriage. So he's talking about two groups of people whom God will judge, those who are single, who are participating in sex outside of marriage, and those who are married, participating in sex outside the bounds of their marriage. The sin is contrary to the law of creation, and thus contrary to the light of nature, and a sin against most expressly the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. All sexual immorality, please hear this, all sexual immorality defiles the marriage bed and dishonors marriage. All of it does. The attempt to destroy the proper purpose and the godly fruit of sex is a defiling of the marriage bed and a dishonoring of marriage. So abortion, surrogacy, most practices of IVF or in vitro fertilization, you notice the word most, and birth control, defile the marriage bed and dishonor marriage. Keep in mind so you don't come up to me afterwards. Are you saying all? Nope. I said most. We are not God. We should not tinker with God's design. Marriage, sex, and procreation were given together by the Lord as a package deal. Prior to the advent of birth control about 70 years ago, it was generally unthinkable to pull these gifts of God apart from one another. Now I meet with young couples in premarital counseling who are like, well, we're ready for marriage, but really not ready for childbearing. To which I want to say, you understand what happens when you get married? Like you say I do, and then some activity begins, and certain things are the fruit of that activity. Yeah, but we're not ready for any of that. Well, then don't get married. We've used modern science to separate those things. The church must be salt and light against this dishonoring of marriage and the defiling of the marriage bed. Listen to how our Protestant forebearers defined obedience to the seventh commandment in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Some of the language will be a bit foreign to you, but that's okay. Just hear what they say. What are the duties required in the seventh commandment? The duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity. Now, chastity in what? In body, mind, affections, words, and behavior and the preservation of it in ourselves and others. Listen, watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses. Temperance, keeping of chaste company. Modesty in apparel. Marriage by those that have not the gift of continency. In other words, those who don't have the gift of singleness, they should get married. Conjugal love and cohabitation as a married couple. Diligent labor in our callings shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting all temptations thereunto. So then they go on to ask, what are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment beside the neglect of the duties required are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts. All, and that's speaking to homosexuality incidentally, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications, or listening thereunto, wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages. 
allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews. They're not opposed to like a beef stew. They're talking about brothels. That's a brothel. That's the way they used it. And resorting to them. Entangling vows of single life. Undue delay of marriage. Having more wives or husbands than one at the same time. Do you notice that? Having more husbands or wives than one at the same time. When I was in seminary, there was an African brother there and they had plural marriage in his culture. And the guys were giving him a hard time about the plural marriage or polygamy. And he said, well, it's basically the same as you guys. We just have all our wives at the same time. (laughs) Unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancings, and stage plays. They don't mean all dancing is bad. They mean lascivious dancing. They don't mean all stage plays are bad. They mean lascivious ones. And all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or others. That's a pretty thorough definition. Sexual morality is continually decried in the Bible. It's condemned with incredibly strong language. And that really leads to the second thing I said I want to point to about sexual morality is God's judgment against sexual morality. God's judgment against it. I want you to note in Hebrews 13, 4, we are told God will judge. Notice that phrase. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This judgment of God is mentioned nearly every time sexual morality is brought up in the New Testament. It's fascinating how often sexual morality and the judgment of God are mentioned together. Jason just mentioned that in your text this morning. Look over at 1 Corinthians 6 when he read this morning. Keep your hand there. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, which is a really poor translation of the English Standard Version. There's actually two different groups of men there, the effeminate men and the homosexual men, which is to be careful, given the audience we have, is to mention both parties in the homosexual relationship, if you will. I'll just say that and encourage you not to imagine things. So they're all not supposed to inherit the kingdom of God. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. And look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. You notice that, and every time it comes up, God will judge. God's wrath is coming. You won't be permitted into the kingdom of God. It's very, very strong language. Incidentally, if you pay attention to all those passages, you'll also notice covetousness coming up in every one of them with regard to the wrath of God, which is the very next thing that the author in Hebrews 13 talks about. He talks about sexual morality and adultery, and then he talks about covetousness or the pursuit of wealth and money being discontented. In Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, he talks about that. They're always bracketed together. It seems to be a lust for more than what God has given you, a discontentment with the station which you've received from him. It is clear both biblically and in pastoral experience that sexual sin 
And lust is a radical and comprehensive lust of the flesh that tends to consume men. Men cease to think wisely and act righteously when they become consumed with this lust. Further, when God turns men over to their godlessness, we're told that He turns them over to sexual immorality. Romans 1.18-31 through 31 turns us over to that. If a man is caught up habitually, listen, habitually and unrepentantly in this sin, that man is condemned. That's what it's saying. If a man is caught up habitually and unrepentantly in that sin, that man is condemned. Men living and dying, this is John Owen, men living and dying impenitently in these sins shall eternally perish. Listen to what he goes on to say. Or a habitual course in them. A habitual course in these sins is utterly inconsistent with any spark of divine grace. But there's gospel hope for those caught up in this sin. Jason also turned us there. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 again. Because we don't want to leave you with condemnation. That isn't the last word. The law and its condemnation is not the last word. Look at what he goes on. I'll read verses 9 through 11 together and I want you to catch that. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. He actually brackets that phrase with that section with that. And then he goes on to say this, and such, catch this, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. Some of you have committed adultery. Some of you have committed fornication. Some of you have dishonored marriage through divorce. Some of you have looked at pornography. So I could go down the list of all the things that some of you have done. And some of you doesn't exclude me. I'm also a sinner. All of us have sinned against God in a variety of ways. Not all of us have sinned against God in the exact same ways, but we've all sinned against God in a variety of ways. We've violated His law. Such were, past tense, some of you. Incidentally, if you want to know God's word with regard to whether homosexuality is an unchangeable or immutable state, such were some of you. Not, you're trapped in it forever and you can never get free of it. It isn't your identity. Such were some of you. Past tense. What happened? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Our Father, who loved us, sent His Son for us. He wasn't like us. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He kept God's law in every regard. He never lusted after a woman. He never committed adultery or fornication. He kept that law. He honored marriage. Always. And then He went to the cross and paid for our dishonoring of marriage. He went to the cross and paid for our sexual immorality, for our sinful lust. He went to the cross and paid for that for us. God's wrath exercised on Him in our place. And His honoring of marriage gets credited to our account so that we're justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God, we've been sanctified, transformed, Made new. Made new. 
See, I know that when we give this kind of hard news, I'm sure most of you think, I have dishonored marriage in some way. I have defiled the marriage bed in some way. If you're not convinced of that yet, you will be in a minute when I get to some applications. And you think, what hope is there for me? Well, the hope is that God's law and his judgment with regard to the law is not the last word. Christ has the last word. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You're now able to walk in godliness and sexual purity by the Holy Spirit. You're no longer enslaved to sin. You're now free to honor marriage and the marriage bed. Here's the point we're driving at. Because marriage is honorable, we should honor it. We should honor it. And that leads to my final point. How can we fight to honor marriage? How can we fight to honor marriage? You're going to laugh at me that I have nine applications. I won't take a long time on all of them. And if you want the notes, I can send them to you. You don't need to try to hurry up and write them all down. Just email me and say, send me your notes, and I'll just send them to you. Nine applications. First, fulfill your God-given vocations in marriage. You want to honor marriage? If you're married, fulfill your God-given vocations. Wives should submit to, respect, and love their husbands as the head of the home. Ephesians 5, 22-24, Colossians 3, 18, 1 Peter 3, 1-6, all abundantly clear on that. Look with me, though, at Titus 2, and look at verse 4. He's just told the older women, those women whose children have grown and left, that they're to teach what is good. And verse 4, so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Let me just stop real quick. Older women, you want to continue to honor marriage in the marriage bed once your children are grown? Then you train and teach the younger women to love their husbands and children. That honors marriage. To be self-controlled, the young women need to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Wives should love their husbands and children and exhaust themselves at home, diligently caring for the needs of their husband and children. It is your high calling to sacrificially give yourselves to these duties. Further, it goes on to say in 1 Timothy 2 that wives should dress modestly. You belong to your husband. You should not be intentionally dressing in a manner that draws attention to yourself. Older women are to encourage and instruct younger women to these ends. Husbands should lovingly lead their wives. They should sacrificially exhaust themselves to provide for and protect their wife and children. Ephesians 5, 25 and following is clear about this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, giving his life for her. But look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and look at verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. This might be translated a knowing way, even a wise way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Listen, husbands, you're to live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor. When I say a knowing way or a wise way, I mean you need to know your wife, you need to know her needs, and you need to know God's requirements of you, and you need to walk in wisdom in line with God's requirements in a way that is most helpful to your wife and her needs. It's one thing to state God's law. Love your wife sacrificially. Provide and protect them. It's another thing to apply that law wisely 
to the wife with whom you're married. So you're not married to everybody else's wife. You're married to your wife. Know her and walk in wisdom with her as her husband. Husbands, you're even expected to lead in raising and discipline of the children. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children or exasperate your children, but bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Every time, by the way, child rearing is mentioned, fathers are addressed first. Somehow in the culture, people think, mothers, mothers, you do it. The text of scripture keeps saying fathers. Husbands, let me throw this in there because we're in a culture now where we increasingly find that the women not only take care of the children, but also the work. They take care of the vocational part of life. Husbands, I just want to say this. Get a job and work hard. Don't be lazy and leave the burden of your household on your wife. And don't give yourself a multitude of excuses for leaving the burden on your wife. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 12, couldn't be more clear that those who will not work will not eat, that you need to get a job. Now, I'm not saying those who cannot work cannot eat. I want to be clear. This is not talking about ability. It's talking about willingness. If you're somehow seriously disabled and you cannot work, this text is not addressing you. But if you're lazy or have a million excuses upon which you heap the burden on your wife, this text is addressing you. Get a job. Provide for your wife. That's how you'll honor marriage. That was the big one. Second way we honor marriage, be thankful to God for your spouse and pray for him or her. Just be thankful to God for your spouse. They are a gift of God's grace. Are you daily seeing ways by which you are blessed to have them and giving thanks? First Thessalonians 5.16, you give thanks in all circumstances. You pray without ceasing, joyful always. Third, keep your own spouse before your gaze. In Job, there's a statement, Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look on a virgin. He's talking about not to look sexually at other women who aren't his own. Look, my eyes need to stay on my wife. Your spouse should be the apple of your eye. Bottom line. Fourth, have sex with your spouse. That seems like a weird thing for me to command to honor marriage, but Paul actually has to command it. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2. They had written to Paul about several matters. One of the matters to which they wrote him had to do with sexual relations. Not surprising that the church has questions about that. It seems to always have questions about it. So he answers verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Listen, you belong to one another. You're not to withhold sex from one another, and you're not to weaponize sex against one another. It isn't a tool to get your way. It isn't a reward or a punishment. It's a right of your marriage. Further, marital sex is not ultimately, I want to be clear about this because our culture has perverted it, it's not ultimately the pursuit of climax, but of intimacy. You're pursuing intimacy. We're not trying to outdo the world in their various perversions by having baptized Christian versions of those perversions. I want to say this particularly to the men because I have so many conversations with guys about this. Your wife is not a tool to gratify your perverse ideas gained from pornography. 
or from your own sick imagination. She's your wife. You can, in marriage, defile the marriage bed in the way you approach it. Don't defile it by introducing worldliness to it. Fifth, watch your tongue toward your spouse and when talking about your marriage. Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Don't you hear that? Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Do not be harsh with them. Titus 2 talks about women watching their tongues as well. Young moms or wives watching their tongues as well and being kind. We need to exercise self-control. Lots of things that are thought do not need to be said. You guys understand that, right? It's never okay. I want to be clear about this. It is never okay, never okay to yell and scream at your spouse, to cuss at your spouse, or to say sinful things to your spouse. It's never okay. How many times is it okay? None. Never permissible. Some folks seem to tolerate these sins as being common. Well, everybody does it, so it's okay. But what is common is never the standard. What is holy is the standard. And in fact, everyone doesn't do it. There are people who actually control their mouths toward their spouse. Lots of them, more than you might realize. We're never permitted to do just a little of what the pagans do. Just a little. We're to put to death everything that is earthly or pagan in us. Everything. Further, you should publicly honor your spouse. It's never permissible to trash talk and complain about your spouse. Never. Now, I'm going to give a caveat to that. Seeking godly counsel in difficulties is not trash-talking or complaining. But making comments to various friends is also not seeking godly counsel. You guys understand the distinction? It's never okay. If you do it once, you should be repenting. If you do it more than once, you should probably be seeking some godly counsel to help you put a governor on your mouth. Sixth, be patient and kind with your spouse and your marriage. I'd be patient and kind. 1 Corinthians 13 lays out what love looks like quite clearly. The Lord is graciously working in you and your spouse and your marriage and his timing. Be patient. Your marriage, when you first get married, is not what you expected right before you first got married. It may be good, but you may have even idealized it as better than it will be. And as you go along, you just grow in godliness toward one another assuming you're pursuing godliness together. You grow in godliness, and some of the things you tripped over early, you don't trip over later. Some of the things that irritated you about your spouse, you just get over, because you mature enough to say, I don't have to be bothered by all my irritations. You know love covers multitude of sins, and you move on. Seventh, avoid the sexual morality that comes with a romance entertainment culture. We live in a romance culture and an entertainment culture. Avoid the sexual morality that comes with it. Mortify your passions that drive you to pornography or the entertainment of thoughts about others that shouldn't be there. Mortify them. Put them to death. Pornography is not, by the way, just looking at explicitly pornographic channels. Anytime sexual morality is being portrayed to you in entertainment, it's pornography. Most of what Netflix and Amazon makes as originals is pornography. Let's face it. You shouldn't be participating in that. Eight, avoid inappropriate entanglements with folks of the opposite sex. Notice what I said, inappropriate entanglements with folks of the opposite sex. I have friends who are women. There's some women in here who are my friends. And men and women can have friends. Even married men and women can have friends of the opposite sex. But those friendships look dramatically different than my friendship with my wife or with my male friends. 
I don't go to lunch with those women friends by myself. We don't just call each other and talk on the phone without someone else hearing. Women in the church, if you call me, just so you know, and you think you're on the phone with me alone, you're not. It's on speakerphone and someone else is in the room every time, just so you know in advance. That's on purpose. Now, I realize that people say it devalues women to put guardrails like this, but it devalues my wife and the marriage covenant not to put these guardrails up. Ninth, finally, love Christ's church by guarding the marriage of one another. Remember we're told in Hebrews 13 to love the brothers, love the church. One of the ways you honor marriage is by guarding the marriage of your brothers and sisters in Christ. When you see them stepping out of bounds, you speak to them about it. And you cut it out quick because you see when sexual morality gets started, when inappropriate relationships start, they run a long way real fast. You cut it off quick. But what if I'm single? There are single people in here. What if I'm single? If you're single, how do you value marriage? Well, if you desire marriage, then you pray for and pursue a godly spouse. If you are pursuing marriage, do not delay it for career success. We've got to stop delaying marriage. You ought to fear God's judgment against sexual morality more than you fear not having a lot of money. We have to avoid the ungodly romance dating culture of our current day. To avoid it. To find ways to date more in a more godly manner. In a more guarded manner. If you want to call it courting, whatever. I'm not getting into that discussion. Just be wise. Paul speaks clearly that it's better to marry than to burn with passion. He also says that if you don't desire to marry, then keep yourself morally chaste. So if you're single and you don't desire to marry, then just keep yourself morally chaste. As long as the Lord keeps you single... You still participate in honoring marriage by guarding the marriage of others. Further, we need to avoid fornication and adultery because these are things God will judge. Just will. Sovereign grace. Whether you're married or single, we need to honor marriage because marriage is honorable and the marriage bed is undefiled. We need to do this while being thankful for the grace of God in Christ that saved us from every way in which we've dishonored marriage and defiled the marriage bed with our own sexual immorality. May God be pleased to cause in our hearts a desire to honor marriage as it deserves. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for the grace that's been shown to us because of your great love for us in Christ, that we've been forgiven, washed clean, justified, declared righteous in Christ. And this not of our own doing, but a gift of God given to us by grace, received through faith, May we look more and more to Christ and may we honor the marriage bed. May we honor marriage, knowing that you have created it and it is honorable. Cause your church to be salt and light in a world that dishonors marriage and defiles the marriage bed. Give us great joy in this gift you've given in Jesus' name. Amen.